Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the book, Anti-Diet. Join me here every week as I talk with fellow anti-diet advocates about their journeys toward peace with food in their bodies. And by the way, on this show, we bleep out diet culture stuff like weight and calorie numbers, but we don't censor swear words or other adult language, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode 243 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with anti-racism educator and author Monique Melton about why doing anti-racism work is a prerequisite to dismantling diet culture, the difficulty of raising black children in our white supremacist society, how to move beyond performative activism and allyship, why anti-racism work is never-ending, and so much more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. I fast-tracked this one. We actually recorded it at the beginning of the uprising uh, in late May, so I this was the quickest I was able to get it out. We like have never <laughs> released an episode this fast after it was recorded just to give you some context for where the world was when we were speaking. I'm not going to be answering a listener question this week because I want to give this space for my interview with Monique and all of the important things she shares, but I'll be back to answering your questions in the coming weeks at some point, and if you want to submit your own question for a consideration for an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. I do just want to give a little heads up for this episode because I originally released it following our usual policy of bleeping out potentially triggering information like weight or exercise numbers and diet advice, which we bleep in every episode that has that content or every interview where that content comes up because of my clinical experience with disordered eating and because of the National Eating Disorders Association guidelines for responsible media coverage. But after this episode came out, Monique conveyed to me that it felt racist to have any of her words be bleeped out by a white woman because it felt like tone policing and silencing, and that reinforced the policing and silencing that happens all too often to black women under white supremacy. So she and I agreed that I would re-release the episode without the bleeps and issue a trigger warning at the beginning with an explanation as to why I'm leaving in a couple of things that would normally be bleeped out. Specifically, those things are the number of days per week she was exercising and some harmful diet advice she received from a personal trainer about a specific food. So please just check in with yourself before listening. And if you're in a place where hearing those things could potentially trigger you into harmful behaviors, then you can wait to listen until you're in a different place. And going forward, I will be checking in with all of my guests about our policy around numbers and other potential triggers and confirming with them that they're okay with any bleeps. And now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Monique Melton. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. When I was a kid, food was good. It was celebratory. Uh, my dad is a chef, 
So I grew up around the kitchen and around good food. My mom is a really good cook too. Food was always positive. It was something that didn't necessarily have a negative connotation associated with it directly, especially as a young child. I didn't see food as a way to measure how I felt about myself or my body, but it wasn't until I would say that was like the younger age. But when I started getting into middle school and you know changes with my body and I can recall certain comments that my parents would make about how my sister and I, so I have three sisters, two sisters and um, how my one sister and I, we had similar frames and we were thicker than my oldest sister. And I remember my mom would make comments about how we were her, you know, big girls. And it wasn't like it was a compliment, but it wasn't necessarily supposed to be an insult. It was more like a joke, but I remember beginning to equate that with the comments that sometimes my parents would make about the amount of food that we would eat. And that was close. Like I said, that was more in the middle school years. And then I, you know, was uh, comparing myself to my classmates and I wasn't as thin as some of the classmates. And I began to start make that connection between what I was eating and my body. And you know, if I change what I eat, then I could change my body. I think I went on my first diet in right in freshman year in high school. It was a ridiculous diet. I won't even say what diet it was because it was just ridiculous. But I remember me and it was another girl who were on this diet. She was um, she she was this short Asian, just right like we're in the same class, sitting right next to each other, young girl, and we're both comparing notes on this diet. And that was my first time making a intentional and deliberate attempt to shrink my body. And, you know, I still would say that over the years and over time, like even throughout high school and college, food was still celebratory. Food was still something that was supposed to be good. It was supposed to taste good. It was supposed to be pleasurable. Um, and it was it just over time with more interactions with people who were also consuming diet culture and comparing myself with my peers and looking at my body and, and feeling like my body was wrong and that I needed to change it, that my relationship with food began to be a very unhealthy relationship. But when I think back to my childhood, like my dad would barbecue and my dad is the best person on the earth who can barbecue. Like there's just no one else who can barbecue like my dad. Um, he would make me strawberry cake every year for my birthday and my mom can fry some chicken. Like food was just really good. And around holidays and special events, it was always like, what are we eating? You know, what, even, even now, like I just had a birthday and my mom and dad are asking my husband, what did he cook for me for my birthday? So food has always been this really fun and nourishing, wonderful part of the overall experience. But then it's also been coupled with, okay, well, don't eat too much because, you know, you don't want to get fat as if fat was bad. And there was a lot of, you know, fat shaming, even in my household, because my dad has always been, as long as I can remember, 
someone in a larger body. And, you know, there was a lot of fat shaming around that, but I didn't realize until I was an adult how much I had internalized that fat shaming. And so I started shaming myself more and started digging and like, okay, where did this come from? So yeah, I would say food was, was good. It just started to turn into this weapon and this really negative relationship and how it affected how I saw my body over, over years. And after spending more time with peers who were also consuming all that is diet culture. Ugh, it's so frustrating how that happens, right? Because it sounds like you had a wonderful relationship with food and having a dad who's a chef and a mom who's a great cook like would make your relationship with food so happy and celebratory. But then there's this sort of nefarious element of diet culture that like twists that and makes that into something bad. Exactly. And it's just, it's so unfair because, you know, when I think back on those moments, I, I don't regret eating the cake. You know, I don't, I don't feel like, oh, I, you know, I should have not had that other piece of whatever. Like it was, it was a part of this experience, you know? And so to try to deem something about it as negative or bad or, you know, breaking the rules or, you know, whatever, just, it feels like it's just ripping a part of the joy that was a part of that experience. Yeah, totally. It just kind of robs it of that pure joy, that element that's like, you don't have to judge, you don't have to think about it. Because I think so much of joy too is like being in the moment and not judging yourself and not, you know, looking at yourself from outside, but just being in it and experiencing it. So if you're kind of sitting outside yourself in judgment, it really takes you away from that joyful presence. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just the other day I was sitting down and I was like, you know, I want some ice cream. And I was like, do we have any ice cream? I didn't know if we had any. And um, my husband, I know he had bought some, but I didn't know what kind. And so then I didn't know if there was any left. So I went to go get some. It was almost gone. And I was just like, tag on it. So I ate the ice cream. And I was just like, I am so glad I don't diet anymore. Like, this just feels good. It tastes good. I wanted it. I ate it. And then that was it. Like, it was no more to think about it. It was. It felt so good. It's so amazing how you can just move on from that experience, how it's like, it's a wonderful moment, it's joyful, it's great, and there's not that guilt that follows, and you just move on with your day. Whereas when you're dieting, it's like, it haunts you. I mean, I remember too, like, same thing with ice cream or cookies or candy or whatever the sweet might be, or like, you know, savory snacks and carbs, all of those things were so forbidden in my mind that, you know, I'd have this craving for them and then fight myself for a while and then finally have it and then be like thinking about it for the rest of the night as opposed to it's just there and then you move on. And then you move on. Yeah. And so leave so much, so much more space for other things in your life. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. The ice cream was good. I won't lie. I do wish there was more. He, <laughs> he ate it all before I can get to it, <laughs> but it was, it was good. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel you on that. My husband is a, a big ice cream fan too, and he'll eat it. Like I always forget it's there in the freezer, which I mean, yeah. that's another thing with not dieting, you know, to just sort of not have, have it on your mind so much. And then, yeah, he gets it before I can get in sometimes. And then he eats it. He yeah, knows. He knows. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, so funny. Well, so how did you get from, I want to sort of go through that whole experience of like being in diet culture and then coming out of it. Because it sounds like you were really in it in high school. And from what you said, it sounds like it kind of started to creep in more and more 
over the years. So, oh yeah, oh my goodness, Ooh, I have, I have, oh, I'm telling you, from high school until probably really just the last two years, I have been deeply invested in diet culture in every shape of the word, everything from internalizing my own anti-blackness and hating my body and wanting to change my body and wishing that it was different and that it was something wrong with how it was and needing to control and tame it and avoid, you know, anything that would even remotely make my body bigger or softer or anything. And so, you know, every, I ran track in high school. I was not fast and so let's not get ahead of ourselves, but I, I ran track in high school all four years and I started, I'll never forget this. It was, I, I was, I went to high school in a very large school and it was the end of the day. And so everybody was pretty much, you know, heading out. And I remember walking in one of the hallways and there was this group of girls that were running. And I'm like, what are they running for? And I didn't realize that they were uh, part of the track team, but they were conditioning inside because of the weather. It was it was cold outside. And I was like, well, what? Maybe I can do this too. And they were like, yeah, and come on. And I'm like, okay. So I started, not that moment. I didn't just like drop my backpack and start running, <laughs> but <laughs> that would be funny. But I I. Ended up being on the track team. And the reason why, though, was to lose weight. I wanted to lose weight. And I did. I lost a ton of weight. And when I was in high school, I wasn't in what you would look at today like, oh, she's in a you know larger body or how that all that, even how you frame it is just full of nuance. But to me, my body was too big. You know, it just was taking up too much space. And so I wanted to shrink it. And so, you know, I was one size and I went down several sizes in a matter of a year. It was very noticeable. And so I ran track. And then once track was over in the summer, I would train and condition like over the summer in the heat. I would, you know, run or do heels and I would diet. I was restrict. I used to work with my dad at the place that he was working at during that time. And I would be around all this yummy food every single day. I mean, dessert, donuts, cookie. I mean, just everything. And I just remember being like, don't eat the biscuit or don't eat this. Or if I did, it would just make me feel guilty. And I was always afraid of like gaining the weight. I would get on the scale all the time and, you know, work out, work out, work out. Or I, I remember one of my teachers saying that you burn calories when you are sleeping. And so then I would just, you know, try to sleep longer. Like I just <laughs> did all these things. And I was doing this, some of this, the, the things that I would do, I was doing, I was embarrassed. So I did them in secrecy. Like my parents didn't know I was doing this stuff and I didn't share it with my peers, but the affirmation that I was getting about my body and how people would be like, wow, you know, you're, Ooh, look at you. And all that praise. Cause my freshman year in high school, I started running and then I kept it, you know, maintain the the restrictive eating in order to try to keep my body a certain size pretty much throughout the course of high school. And uh, I remember one summer getting ready to start back the school year. I was getting ready to come inside. I had on some really short shorts because I felt, I felt confident at that point when my body was in a smaller size. I somehow felt like that was okay to show my legs at that point. And I, and that's how I met my husband. He noticed me from like almost a mile away. It felt like 
you know, and he's like asking his friends, oh, who is that? He was new to the school and we met in weightlifting class and he tells everyone, oh, he loved my legs. And I'm just like, oh, that's so problematic now. But at the time, at the time it felt good. You know, it felt like, oh, you know, I felt, I felt desirable and all those things. So all throughout high school. And then I went to college and college is different. You put on weight and I was getting married my junior year in college. And I remember, I'll never forget this. Like I went, I had to have my wisdom teeth removed and I had a really like really bad reaction to it where I was just, I couldn't really eat. And so I was like secretly happy about that because I was trying to get into a wedding dress. And, and so with, with all of that, I ended up being able to fit my dress because I wasn't really eating. And so right after getting married though, it felt like, Oh, finally, I could take a break from all this restrictive eating. And my husband was also in the military at the time. And so he, he was in and out of sea at the time. And so I was really lonely. And I just, when he would come home, we would, we would eat. When I say we would eat, we would eat everything in town that you could find. And I put on a good amount of weight right after that first year of marriage. And I'll never forget coming home after being away, because we moved out of the, the state and having put on that weight. And I was already feeling really embarrassed about it because when you live in diet culture, that's part of it. You know that when you gain weight, you know, there's the the shame and all of that. And, and when I went home, one of the first things that someone made a comment about how I had gained weight and that I was fat. And at the time that felt like an insult. You know, because that's I was very deeply involved in diet culture and fat shaming. And so from that point on, I went on and off of diets and, you know, you name it, I was trying it, you, the books and the programs and the points and all those things. And, you know, going up and down, up and down, up and down. And then I became, I got pregnant. We intentionally, you know, conceived and I gained weight like people supposed to do when you're pregnant. And, after the pregnancy though, I wanted to get the weight off because that's what you're quote unquote supposed to do. Like you're not, your body is supposed to change after you have a baby. You're supposed to bounce back and all that kind of problematic stuff. And so I did, I lost a good amount of weight, had another, got pregnant again, had my second child and lost a good amount of weight after, after her. And I still couldn't get to this place of satisfaction. It was never enough. And so I remember hiring a personal trainer. I've hired, I've worked with personal trainers throughout my life. Like I had one in college when I was trying to get into my wedding dress. Instead of just buying a dress that fit, it was like, you got to get into this dress. So I've had personal trainers, but one in particular really did a doozy on me. And I remember her telling me how, you know, food is, is not supposed to be for pleasure food is not about celebration. Like you, and you have to eat. It was all about measuring and constricting. And I mean, she even told me I couldn't eat apples. And I was like, apples? Like at the time I loved apples and peanut butter. Like it was like, you tell me, she's like, no, they're this, they're that, they're this. And I remember really pushing back and being like, this is not working. And she, she got on the phone with me and was like, you're just not trying hard enough. You're not committed. You must not really want this. I used to have to take pictures in my underwear, front and back and side and send them to her. And it was just, it was awful. It was, it was, but I felt like 
that's what I needed to do to get what I felt like I needed to have, you know, this, this, this body. And it wasn't until I really just got tired of chasing a number. We got rid of the scale. I told my husband to get rid of it and come to find out though, it's still here somewhere. I just don't know where. <laughs> Cause he was like, I weighed myself the other day. I'm like, what you mean you weighed yourself? He's like, yeah. I'm like, what? Where's he's like, I'm not telling you. I said, like, I don't want to know. Cause I have no interest in getting on it, but we got rid of that. But when I got rid of the scale, that caused even more anxiety. Cause I'm like, how am I going to measure myself? How am I going to make sure that I'm, you know, quote unquote, staying in this? Like it just, if it, it did freak me out for a little bit, but getting rid of the scale, getting rid of the new year's resolution, getting rid of, like, I just got tired of chasing it. And then I also just felt like, you know, when I would go to the gym and work out and, you know, do all the kind of things that I was doing, part of the reason why I started exercising in the gym was because I had really bad postpartum mood disorder with my son. Um, and I remember reading all these different types of ways to cope with anxiety. And one of them was physical exercise. And I was like, okay, the, I, you know, let's give it a try. And when I started doing it, I actually did start benefiting from it uh, mentally. And so I started working out with that as a motivation, but there was still this desire to shrink my body. And it wasn't until, like I said, like the past two years that I just got curious around why I should be shrinking my body, why I need to be restricting my food, what's wrong with being with, with my body being thicker or softer, like just really just getting curious and then started reading more and following other people and hearing other things. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is a whole movement. And that's when it started to really feel like, okay, I think I'm finding my home. Like I'm finding my place, but it didn't mean, it doesn't mean that like all the thoughts just went away at that time. You know, I still was, you know, contemplating, you know, doing this or that type of whatever. Like I was still very much still need to change my body. Like, okay, we can do intuitive eating only if that also means I'm going to shrink my body. You know, that was what my initial approach with it. I was like, okay, is this a, is this some sham? Like, I just was so like skeptical of it. Like, is this just for people who have just can't be disciplined enough to do, follow a diet? And I'm like, no, ma'am, it's certainly not that. But I was very skeptical, but just over the time being really curious about why I was doing what I was doing, why I was believing what I was believing. And also along with my own unpacking, my own internalized anti-blackness and seeing how diet culture and all of that is rooted in white supremacy, that, if anything, that jolted me to even more so surrender diet culture and really embrace myself and my body and everything that comes with that. So it's been a, it's been a back and forth, very bumpy road. Um, there's still a lot of, you know, remnants there, but thankfully my husband is really supportive and we'll both say, you know, point out like diet culture or we, I was, I was listening to your book one day and it was on the microphone. It was on the speaker and my son came down. He was like, is that, are they talking about diet culture? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, buddy. Like, you know, it's, it's becoming this whole like family affair. 
That is so cool to hear. I love that so much. And it's so awesome to hear that your husband's really involved with rejecting diet culture too, because I was curious when you were talking about meeting him in high school, when you were in a smaller body and him liking your legs and all of that stuff, which is the case for, I think, so many people who get together with their partners when they're in a dieting place, right? And then sort of how you move through that in your marriage, in your partnership, like while, you know, where you're healing your relationship with your body and kind of bringing him along, like how did that sort of start to unfold? Yeah, that's a great question. So when, you know, when we were in high school, we were, you know, just young kids in love. And when I went to college, he went to the Navy. So we were apart for a good amount of time and we would only, you know, see each other, you know, on occasions. And one thing he never did until this day made it a point to address or notice my weight gain. Like he, and I remember being upset with him after our first year of marriage of like, why didn't you tell me you, I was gaining all this weight. Like it, like it was something to be punished for, or like, I, I guess I thought maybe if he didn't find me attractive, that I would be motivated by that. And so why didn't he tell me that I didn't, that I was gaining weight? And he's just like, because it didn't matter to me. Like he just, he, and he, to this day, like, he's just like, I love you for you. I, I love everything about you. And so, you know, when I've been in a smaller body or when I've been, he's never changed the expression of love for me. And it's always just been this, it's been a constant. And I think that's been a huge part of why the journey to healing has been one that we can do together because I don't think he was very invested in diet culture to begin with. I think it was more like he was coming along for the for the ride. I was like telling him we need to do these things and okay, babe, I'm going to do this diet starting on Monday. He was just like kind of supporting me and on for like with it because it was what I wanted to do. But when I began telling him how it's problematic and it's rooted in white supremacy, he was, it was, it clicked for him really quickly. He wasn't skeptical like I was when it was like, what is this intuitive eating stuff? He's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, but I will say until recently, he's pretty much been around the same consistent body size for the you know past years. And then recently he's put on a little bit of weight. And so then he started having some of his own, like, oh, is there something wrong with my body? It's his, his own thing. So I think part of the reason why maybe it didn't directly influence or change the way that he saw food because his body pretty stayed consistent. It wasn't going up and down with food. So I wonder too, what that may have looked like if he also was gaining weight with me, would he have been saying or complaining about his body? Cause he does, he doesn't do that. Um, and I think that would have only made me want to complain about mine if he's complaining about his, but I just was doing the complaining all on my own, mostly about my body. And he, and he hated it. He, he would, he would tell me to stop or, you know, like stop, stop complaining about your body or, you know, um, he saw it as, you know, insulting myself and he didn't like it. But I definitely think, yeah, we've been along for the ride because we tried, you know, vegan and all, I'm telling you, when I tell you we've done some things with diet culture. We have done some things, but I do think that because 
there's this real deep love and respect that he has for me as an independent thinker and someone who can make my own choices. And he doesn't try to force or persuade me to do what he thinks I need to do. If I, if I, if I plead the case or share with He's going to pretty much go on the, he'll go on the support role. Uh, the only thing he wasn't in that supportive of is me wanting to open a childcare center in our house. He was like, no, I'll support you with everything else, but not that. No. And I'm glad he didn't because um, I don't want to take care of people, kids like that. <laughs> Especially now with a post COVID <laughs> world. <Oof. laughs> no, this was, this was before I became a mom. So I didn't know any better at all. You didn't know what you would have been in for. <laughs> no. Mm-mm. But that's awesome. It sounds like he's so supportive and just such a good person. He really is. How lucky that you stumbled into him. I tell you, we I walked into weight weightlifting class and there he was and there I was. And we've been together ever since. He really, truly is an amazing human being. That is so sweet. Oh my God. I'm tearing up. <laughs> I could talk about him. I could talk about him all because like, he has been there with me. I'm telling you, like the highs, the lows, the in-betweens. We've been there together. We've been through medical scares on both ends. Like it's just, we've, we've been through a lot of just life. And, you know, even during this COVID, my dad was asking, how are we doing? Like, you know, is there tension? And we both looked at each other like, we are doing great. Like we, obviously we have our moments. We're not perfect, but we just, we have a lot of love and respect for one another. That's the key, right? It's like yes. love and respect above all. And I mean, having kids too, I can imagine that comes in handy, the, the love and respect for each other through that because I don't have kids of my own yet, but from what I've seen from parent friends going through it, it's like that will really test a relationship. To the millionth percent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it will. It really, which is why I'm, I'm really glad that we had a good amount of time to be just us. We we were, it was almost five years of being married before we decided that we wanted to get pregnant. And thankfully we had absolutely no problems getting pregnant. We started and then it was like, Oh, I'm pregnant um, both times. And I, I'm so thankful for that, but it did rock our world. Even, you know, it, it rocked it completely. I'm sure. Yeah, it completely changes things. And I'm curious from like the food and body perspective, how that unfolded for you. Cause it sounds like you got deeper into diet culture after the first child, like wanting to quote unquote, get your body back. How did your journey out of diet culture kind of coincide with having another kid and have, and raising kids and their relationship with food? Like, cause it sounds like now your kids are like on board and know what diet culture is and are like against it, which is very cool. Yeah. I did not get out of this whole diet culture gaze until after my second child. So I was very much, but like I said, most in the beginning, I would find myself feeling embarrassed about the measures that I was taking to try to shrink my body. And so that attempt to do some of this in secrecy, it it transcended into my my process of trying to shrink my body after having kids because I knew what I was doing and how I was feeling about my body was not something that I wanted my children to do or to see me do. I didn't want them to feel about the feel the way about their body the way I was feeling. It's certainly not my daughter. Definitely my son, but it was something about the whole, you know, daughter aspect and what it's like being 
woman who identifies as a woman in this in a in a society and you just all the messages that we have internalized about every single aspect of who we are and then being black like and so i remember just never talking or complaining about my body around them I mean, if I was feeling any kind of negative thoughts about my body and I wanted to talk about it and the kids were present, I would whisper it to my husband or, you know, say it to him, you know, because I didn't want them to hear it. And I didn't want them to see food as something that was, you know, bad or that they should feel one way about. But I still did things like cheat day. They, I know they overheard me talk about a cheat day. Or I would say things like healthy versus unhealthy, or this is good. Or, you know, I would say I definitely would infer and directly express the moral hierarchy of food around them. And, you know, there were certain foods that were like absolutely not coming in my house, you know, because they weren't quote unquote good and all of that. And so I have released all of that, especially with COVID. I mean, you, you just be thankful you got some food. Okay. Like I don't have time to be worried about if it's organic or fresh or, or locally sourced, whatever. Just make sure you have some food, get out of the store as quickly as possible. Come home, wipe it down, wash your hands. Like it's just a whole, it's a whole nother thing. But the kids, I have talked to them and corrected them when they might make a joke about something being fat and and as if it's like a bad thing, I'll talk to them about that and why that's wrong. Um, Or if they're watching something on TV and I overhear something that is diet culture or white supremacist or whatever it is, and then I'll call it out so that they can be aware of it. But, you know, they're still young. So it's one of those things where I'm trying to shape and influence their understanding with food and their bodies in a culture that wants them to believe something completely different. And so it's like, I know I can't shield them from it, but if I can just give them some tools to combat it and to operate in the culture without being consumed or defined by it, I hope that I can, which is why I'm even more eager to to build my toolbox and to sharpen and to have better knowledge and understanding around it to help and pass along to them, which, I mean, it's hard. It's really hard because it's everywhere. It's in their school. It's, you know, in, and like, for example, when we were starting, when we were just starting to do shelter in place, I come from going to the gym five to seven days a week, lifting cardio, all the things. And to, okay, now what am I going to do? I like to exercise because it feels good and I enjoy it. And I remember trying to do some workouts with them and in the house. And I was trying to make it fun because I didn't want it to feel like it was a punishment or that they had to do it or else. And I just was really trying to be mindful of my language when they were ready to just like fall out on the floor because they were tired. <laughs> and I'm just like, it's okay if you want to take a break or if you're done, like, but also don't want them to just be laying around all day because they need to keep their body strong. And, you know, my son has a genetic disorder. And so we, we have to do certain things because of how it could affect his, his physical health. So it's like, I don't want to force it on them, but I also don't want, don't want them like to, you know, consume it as diet culture, but I want them to move. It's let's do some dancing. Let's do some, like we try to make it fun, you know, and I invite them to work out with me if I'm doing a workout, but if they don't want to do it, I try not to like 
force it either. It's a, it's a lot. It is not easy. I will not lie. It is, it is definitely, it's definitely tough. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, so much going on in the world right now with COVID and then being home and, but still getting exposed to diet culture messages on TV or all kinds of kids media, I feel like is saturated with diet culture messages. And then to be able to like engage in movement where they're not really able to go outside as much or can't do the activities they might do otherwise. Like it's hard to kind of frame that in a way that is joyful without, you know, making it a thing that like they have to do it. I don't know if they've had experiences of like BMI report cards at school or being taught about nutrition or anything like that, but I'd be curious how you've handled that stuff if it comes up in like a school setting. Yeah, so we didn't, I haven't seen that in particular, but I definitely have seen things about, you know, this is healthy, this is this is what you should eat, this is the type of foods that you need to have, or they'll call it a healthy snack. You know, what is, what does that mean? What does a healthy snack mean? And so I think when, when we talk about that, one of the things I do with my son, cause he'll bring it up a lot. He's very much like what's right and what's wrong. And he, he really wants to be on the right side of things. Like he wants to just know, like I'll explain something someday and then he'll be like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? He's trying to know how should he feel about it? And so with him, when I'll, I'll ask him just questions to get him to think so he can build his own independent thinking skills and not necessarily need someone to always tell him what's right or wrong, but to be able to think about it himself and come to his own conclusion. And so I'll just get, I'll ask him questions like, well, what does that mean? And, you know, where did you learn that? What is, what, what, what does that feel like? And thinking of it that way, like asking questions like that. And they are both really good at expressing their thoughts and their feelings. So that is something I'm really fortunate with, with both of them, is that when I ask questions, they can get to the answers that I'm hoping that they can get to without me always having to be like, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. This is, this is how it should be. Kids need to know that they can come up with their solutions too. They can come up with ideas that work and that are good and that are helpful. They, they need to know that they, they can do that. But I haven't really seen any... BMI or any of that kind of just, you know, icky stuff. And when it comes, because I will use any moment as a teaching moment, they know it and they'll laugh sometimes when it does come, because it will, I'll be ready. I'll be ready. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to be that kind of parent too. <laughs> oh yeah. Always with the teaching moments. <laughs> always. Always talking about something. We are, we talk about white supremacy in this house at least once a day. Like it's, it's the patriarchy. I mean, feminism, all of it. I'll sometimes even make my kids tell me, okay, well, what's the definition of racism? And they'll get stumbled up and then they'll, uh, we'll talk about it. Cause I want them to be able to understand these concepts that most people think they're too big to grasp, but they're experiencing them, even though they might not be able to understand the language around it, but they're still experiencing. And I want my kids to have a better language around what they're experiencing and to know, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Oh, that's because it's this, or that's because this is what's happening. I want them to build that muscle. Yeah. And to know that it's not their fault too. Right? Exactly. If they can see that it's a system of oppression operating on them and not just like, did I do something wrong? Cause I feel like that's the sort of default of a lot of kids is to be like blaming themselves. Exactly. 
Exactly. And that's, and that's one thing, you know, my son came home one day with telling us about a racist encounter that he experienced with one of his teachers. And the, one of the first things I did was I told him that I believed him because one, one of the issues was he was being told that he was a liar, but it was, it was also like, what happened to you is not okay. And that that was not your fault. And, and we're going to fix it. We were up there the next day. School could barely even open. We were there, you know? And so it's just, I, I, yeah, absolutely. Especially for black children and how black children are criminalized and beginning in school. I mean, even before they enter school and the school to prison pipeline and all of that, like I, my, I have to be hyper vigilant about how my children perceive themselves and how they are able to have a healthy identity of their blackness when the whole world around them wants them to believe that they are nothing, that their life doesn't matter, that they are inferior. Like I have to, I have to be very mindful of instilling a strong sense of self-worth and value within them. It's a scary world to be raising black children in. Oh, I can't even put it into words to really grasp the amount of weight that you feel and how devastating it is to have conversations with my children that no parents should have to have. But yet I have to, because they have to learn how to survive whiteness. They have to learn it. And even when they learn it, it's still not a guarantee. You know, it's like when you teach your kid how to get in the car every day, make sure you put your seatbelt on, make sure you pay attention to what's going on on the road, no texting. Like you tell them all these things and your kid could be doing all the things that you've taught them, but there's still a whole world out there of folks who are doing whatever, drunk driving, texting, speeding, that could still result in your child's life being destroyed. And so it's like, I can teach my kids all day long of how to have self-respect and how to honor people and how to do this and how to do that. And what to say when you are engaging with authority and police. I can teach them all these things, but there's no guarantee because there's a whole world of people who do not care about my children's lives and will see their blackness as a threat. And that is devastating for me as a parent. It is absolutely crushing. Oh, it's heartbreaking. And it's, it's must be such a responsibility, feeling of responsibility on you to teach them how to navigate it. It is because like I said, there's no guarantee. And you love them. You know, people say, oh, you don't, you don't know love until you have a child. Well, first of all, no, I knew love because I loved myself. And so, and I love my husband, but the type of love that you have for a child is, it's just, it's something that you want to protect. You want, you want what's best and you just, you love, you love them enough to do anything you possibly can to ensure that they have everything that they need and you do all you do all you can but when you're black when you're black and you're trying to love and take care of a, of a black child what that looks like is brutal because it's not fair that I have to talk to a nine-year-old about what to do if you're interacting with a police officer we should be talking about play-doh and Legos you know, we, we shouldn't have to have that conversation, but that is a part of me loving my child, doing everything I possibly can to protect them and ensure that they can have the best life possible. But when you're in a group, when you identify, when you're a black person that, and you're in a group that is marginalized because you're black, part of that love is having to protect them against the dehumanization of white supremacy. And that in and of itself is painful to have to do. 
Oh, it's so painful. It's like forcing them to grow up before their time. It is. That's what white supremacy does to black kids and to, to kids of color. Yeah. It really there's no there's no childhood, there's no innocence for black kids. And, you know, it's just it's unfair, but it is what it is. Like I have to do it, you know? Yeah, that's better than the alternative of not doing it and just having them be naive to it and getting themselves in situations where they could get killed or hurt. And then even when they do know all the things and they do get in situations, they still get killed. And so that's the part that's so enraging about it. It's like there's nothing when when your blackness is the threat, there's nothing you can do to disarm that. Oh, yeah, there's no no way of talking, no way of communicating. Nope. It's just there's nothing. It's the person's racism. That's it's infuriating. And that's I can imagine that probably has something to do with your career choice. Right. And trajectory as to why you've gone in this direction of anti-racism education. Oh yeah, absolutely. After having my son, he was around three when we heard a lot of the, we were seeing back to back in the news of unarmed black men and women being murdered by police. He was around the age of three. And, and prior to that, I was doing, you know, talking about racism. I, even in college, I studied it. My education background is sociology and in mental health. So, you know, there was it was there. I, you know, written papers about white privilege. But it wasn't until the seeing and hearing about one after another black man, woman, transgender person being murdered by police and at the hands of white supremacy that my three-year-old son no longer was this three-year-old little chubby little thing. It was, oh, wait a minute, this target on his back that I've always known was there. It wasn't like I didn't see it, but it was so glaring. And I just remember that this, this wake up, like, whoa, Mike Brown, that could be my son. I mean, that was in my city. That happened in my city where I was, you know, raised. And so I started talking about it. I started writing about it. And when I tell you the backlash that I got, it shocked me. It was from people who I had had meals with, gone on trips with, sat beside one another in church, prayed with. I mean, it was the backlash I received specifically from people who I thought would be the first to champion and align with me, it was crushing. It was absolutely crushing. And for a minute, it stalled me. I was so hurt. And the way that people would weaponize the Bible to try to silence silence me and to reprimand me. I mean, even my own pastor sent me a private message one time after I wrote something, told me, and I mean, in so many words, like I need to change my tone and this is the appropriate way to, you know, and it's like, are you kidding me? You, you're going to tell me, you white person are going to tell me how to express my pain about something you'll never know what it's like to feel. You're that's, that's what you feel is the best thing to do. How many DMs are you sending to the white supremacist folks who are posting and putting things and feel very comfortable worshiping in the church that you lead? You know, and so it's just, it's, it's, it was crushing. And it, it, it definitely paused me for a while, but about... I would say maybe about five years before I had my son, I was at a church service and there was a pastor who was visiting 
who prophesy, and for folks who don't know what prophesy, it's kind of like they, they, they're sharing a word from God to you. And it's usually something like about either like the future or something like that. And they shared that the pastor shared, who didn't know me, that I would bridge the gap between black and white. And at the time that didn't, like we went home and had dinner or something. Like it didn't really like, whoa, what is that? Um, but I remembered that prophecy during that time when my son was around three and I started speaking out and using my voice. And I remember praying like, okay, if I'm going to do this, like I, I need support. Like I can't be out here being attacked and being threatened, like having to call the police. Like it was so much all happening and no, and it felt like all the people who were in my circle at that time were looking at me as if what I was doing was my cause and my burden that I was carrying for myself. And, you know, you're, you're kind of putting yourself out there and whatever you get is on you versus like, this is, this is actually our responsibility, white folks to dismantle this system. And we need to be following your lead and listening and supporting you. It was, it was more like, Oh, Monique, you, you know, maybe you're doing too much or, Oh, uh, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't have said it that way. Well, what do you expect? You know, it was very antagonizing and, so I just remember just praying, like, how am I going to do this? And just feeling really afraid to do it. So I took, it took me a while. Cause like I, my son was three at the time, he's nine now. And I, and it wasn't until last year when I was working on my second book and, and the book I was talking about, oh no, 2018. I take that back. It was 2018 when I was working on my second book and the book itself is this very deep process of excavating your beliefs and uncovering who you truly are and breaking free from all the different things that you've tried to um, identify yourself as that are actually painful and that are causing harm. And so it's this whole, like, it's a very beautiful, but painful process that came like as a divine download. And when I wrote about it, I said, okay, I won't put anything in this book that I won't be willing to do myself. And so I did it. I was doing the work and I was crying and I was in therapy, but in doing the work while also still doing, sharing, using my voice, still being afraid to use my voice, losing a lot of friends and relationships and, and hurting. Like I just kept doing it. I just kept going because that call, I knew I was called to this work and I couldn't like in writing the book. And I, I remember just spending time and praying and just hearing from God and not like the male, white male Christian God, like not that God, but just, you know, just really praying and connecting and feeling like this is what I'm called to do. And I know God will give me everything that I need to do it. And so just like in 2018, I was like, all right, um, I'm going to do this. And I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not going to stop. And that was when I launched my first group program. It was three people. And we went through an anti-racism course that I created. And I had a guest lecturer who to this day is still a part of my program that I do. It, it's it's gone from like a six week to now 12 week full workbooks and worksheets and videos. And like, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole situation, but you know, I just, I, I look back to that Monique that was so afraid to do this and afraid of losing friends and losing opportunities and clients and, 
in my children being heard or all those things. And those are still real fears as far as like my children and my own safety. But as far as like the friends and, you know, clients and all that, they, they already left. They've left and I'm still here. You know, like I, it didn't, it didn't destroy me. It hurt. I grieved. I cried. I lost, I lost all of my closest friends, people who were in the room with me when I gave birth. And so that was crushing, you know, and it all happened in a very short time frame. but it, it just made me really look at everything in my life. It made me look at every single belief. And so the same thing that I challenge white people to do when they're doing this work about uncovering your beliefs and unpacking and doing the inner work, I was doing it too. And I, and I still do it. So when I tell them how disorienting it is, I'm speaking from experience. When I tell them that you're going to lose friends, I'm speaking from experience. But I also know that the alternative of not doing this work means that the oppressive systems remain and my life still be, is still in jeopardy and my children's life is still in jeopardy. And so the alternative is, is no longer an option for me. And it shouldn't be for you either, anyone else who's holding white privilege. And so there's work for all of us to do. Uh, My work as a black woman looks like healing from internalized white supremacy. That process is very different than what a white person needs to engage in when doing the work of anti-racism and and white supremacy. But all of us have work to do um, to change this reality. So yeah, it's been this whole evolution. I've changed the person who I was two years ago and the person I am now. We, I love her. I'm grateful she got me to where I, I am now, but I don't want to go back. I don't, I'm, I love who I am. I, oh, I just love, I love me so much. <laughs> and it sounds like you really followed your intuition of what was important to you and what you felt called to speak out about. And I can empathize with the pain. I mean, I, I don't know, of course, the the pain of being black and having to go through that additional layer of racism being heaped on you for expressing your views. But like, you know, I've definitely lost friends in speaking out about anti-diet stuff and health at every size and, you know, people I used to work with writing about diet culture and working as a dietitian and diet culture, I'm not really close with anymore, you know, really lost touch with. And like, I can only imagine how much more painful it is when you're so personally implicated and invested in the work. And then there are these people that you're so close with and were present at the birth of your child and they don't support you and they don't get it. Like that is crushing. Yeah. Because it's, because the thing about diet culture is that's not your identity. My blackness is my identity. When I show up in a room, I'm black. And when I go to bed, when I wake up, and so, you know, when I'm doing the work to dismantle and to do all these things, like at the end of the day, when people say no to anti-racism, you're saying no to my humanity, you know? And as much as these other systems of oppression cause significant pain, they all have roots in white supremacy. Diet culture. Yeah. It died, all of it. Capitalism, diet culture, ableism, ageism. I mean, homophobia, all of it has roots, has a relationship to white culture and, and white supremacy. So if we could do that, if we could come and get rid of that, that would begin to dissolve these other oppressive systems because there's not a strong foundation to stand on with that, um, to build on with that. And so 
you know, when people are like, oh, well, this is a cause, anti-racism is a cause. No, it's not. It's a responsibility. It's absolutely your responsibility. It's not my cause to feed my kids. Like when they're hungry, I don't say, oh, I'm sorry, you're hurting. No, I go (laughs) in the kitchen and feed them because it's my responsibility. And, and, And thankfully I have the resources and I have the ability to do it. But as long as they're in my care and I'm responsible for them, I'm also responsible for taking care of them. It's not a cause to, to you know, to do. Like I'm not gonna just I'm not gonna give them a heart emoji and be like, oh, I'm sorry, you're hurt, hurting. What is that gonna do? Right. Yeah. They need you need action. They need action, not just words. No, absolutely. <laughs> my kids would be like, okay, but where is the macaroni? Yeah. Thanks for the heart emoji. Give me my mac and cheese. <laughs> like, and at least get some chicken over here, please. Right, right. <laughs> oh, so true. I'm so curious to know from your perspective, like what people listening can do to start. Because I think for a lot of folks listening, probably or some folks listening, I should say, uh, doing the work of dismantling diet culture is maybe their first entry point into dismantling white supremacy. And for Many others who are listening, they're already doing that work. And this just ties into that, you know, because a lot of folks I know are like very social justice minded already and then realize, oh, my God, light bulb moment, like diet culture is part of this problem that I've been, you know, working to push back against. So I think there's people kind of coming from both of those perspectives and, of course, people of different ethnicities and races and backgrounds and stuff. So what would you say is sort of a good starting point for some folks who are listening to start taking that responsibility, doing that work of like your analogy of feeding the kids, you know, like what, what can we do to like do that repair work together? When I think about how, when people really want to find the answers to something, nothing stops them. And so the same energy that you're willing to put into finding how to craft that really elaborate thing for your kids one year birthday party. I want you to put that energy in trying to figure out where to start with this work. Like take this idea of helplessness and I just don't know, like take that off and really own what it is. I just don't want to do it. I don't want to have to face myself. I don't want to have to face my family. I don't want to have to face my complicity, my my complacency in this system. I don't want to face that. And so I'm just going to say, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. Like, start with being honest with yourself. Start with being, why haven't I started doing this work? Because I certainly know how to use the internet. You know, I certainly know how to use Pinterest. I certainly know how to go to a library or to go to Netflix. Like I certainly know how to do those things. There's no mystery when it comes to finding information for anti-racism. This work isn't hiding and it's not new. It might be new to you, but black people have been talking about this from the beginning, from 1619. We've been talking about our liberation. So it's so getting, so the first thing is to be honest about where you are, And what do you get out of being in that willful sense of ignorance? And what is it that is holding you back from really trying to uncover the truth and to learn and to make some steps forward? When you get honest about that, then we can go to the next thing. But because what happens is people will 
come across something and they're like, oh, I should be following that person on Instagram. That was a really good post. Or, oh, I should be doing that. I should be doing that. But it comes from this very performative place. And so then when you do it, you might follow, you might share, and it stays very performative. You're not really doing work within the inside because you don't feel like it's necessary. You're like, oh, I'm a nice person and I don't say the N word or I don't burn crosses on people's porches. And, you know, I'm not at the KKK meeting. Like, I'm not doing those things. So, what more is there to do? Like, what, what, what more is there? I'm, I'm, I'm fine with the way I live my life. And the problem is out there. It's not, it's certainly not within me. And so, when people are not being honest with why am I not doing more? Why am I not? doing the work within myself? Why am I not trying to figure out what can I do to end the violence against Black people, people of color? Because it's not always what you're doing, it's what you're not doing. And what are you willing, What and why aren't you doing it? So starting with being honest about that and not expecting that Black folks, especially Black women, are here to hold your hand and to coddle you and to be patient and gracious gracious with you as you figure this out. No, 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 no. Catch up to speed. Come on. You, you come on, come right on in. Get in, get right on in here. And you'll learn soon, very soon with me, that there is a lot of work to do and it's your responsibility to do it. So let's get it done. Let's get it done. Let's go. You know, there's no ally cookies. There's there's no, you know, exceptional white folks. Y'all all need to do it. And so let's get it done. We don't stall and dwell on how you feel about the work and how it's making you overwhelmed and exhausted. We focus on why we're doing the work and keep the focus there. So I would say, again, I can't emphasize this enough. It's just being really honest with yourself, you know, asking questions like looking around your life. Do any of my black friends, if you have them, because statistically, most white people do not have close friends with black people. So if you even have black friends, do they talk to you about race? And if they do, how is that conversation? What happens in that conversation? Are you finding yourself the center of the conversation? Are you finding your feelings being centered and prioritized? Do you find yourself crying and trying? Like, or do they, can they truly share? And expect you to listen and for you to acknowledge. Can they tell you, do your friends ever tell you about something that you have done, you specifically have done that's caused them harm and specifically with race? And chances are, if you are in a relationship with a black person and they've never done that, it's probably because they don't feel safe to do that. It's not because you've never done anything. It's because they probably don't feel safe to do it. And so having these type of questions and answering these type of questions without falling into the urge of shame and guilt can move you to a place of self-awareness and taking action that will actually move us closer to a society where Black people, people of color can live freely in our humanity. It's not about you feeling absolved from your you know, guilt or shame or what you did, because what you did, whatever it was, it was wrong, but you can't get stuck in the shame because then you're just, you're, you're only going to just keep upholding the system. There's a lot to do. There's a lot of questions to process. There's a lot of things, but thankfully folks like me 
and Layla and Rachel and uh, Rachel Cargo and Layla Saad and Catrice Jackson. And I mean, there's so many badass black women who are out here creating amazing resources. We are not the resources. We are not, don't call me a resource. We create resources. You know, we're out here speaking and teaching and holding space and all these type of things that we consent to. Don't be in our DM asking for labor. And so, you know, do that work, invest in those programs and go beyond just reading the book or buying the book. Cause half of y'all don't even read the book. You might buy it, but then, you know, but go beyond just reading the book. Like Layla said in her book, she can tell the difference between people who actually read her book and actually do the book. There's a whole different thing, you know, attend the classes, apply the thing. Like it's, it's more it's more than once you get to this place. Okay, well now I know this is my responsibility. I'm going to do this work. Okay, I'm gonna read this book, and then that's it. Like it's it's more than that, and it's about daily commitment of showing up in the world. How can I show up in the world to end the violence against Black people, people of color? Not how can I show up in the world and feel good about anti-racism work that I'm doing personally in my life? Like, no, <laughs> it's not about that. Yeah, I know. And I was sharing with you a little bit off off mic or before we started recording that it was, you know, I was realizing lately with this latest wave of police brutality and or, you know, murders of black people and all of that, that I did a lot of work years ago when I first started doing health at every size work and health at every size is so committed to thanks to the labor of black people and people of color in the movement has really started to focus on social justice and anti-racism and bringing that in and integrating that with health at every size. And so like did a bunch of trainings and, you know, felt like, okay, I'm good, you know, and like moved forward, you know, reading books and reading on social media and sharing social media and kind of feeling and like, you know, giving money or doing other little things like that, but not really continuing to do that work of workshops and journaling and, you know, the unlearning that has to continue happening over time. And so I'm recommitting to that now because I think that, you know, feeling like you've just done it and it's behind you and it's like, okay, took that class next on the list, like, you know, check that box is just not good enough. It's just not actually doing the work. No. And that has everything to do with understanding your motives behind doing the work. Because if you're doing the work to feel enlightened or to feel educated or to feel more aware or to be seen as someone who is progressive and, you know, aligned with activism and justice work, if you're doing this work for any of those reasons or for any other reason than to end the violence against black people and people of color and to make sure that we live in a equitable and just society where resources are shared equitably. If you're not doing it for that, whenever you achieve the thing that you're doing, whether it be, oh, I learned the thing or I did the thing or I got the class, whenever you check that off, you'll stop. Because if you're doing it to end the violence against black people, people of color, if you're doing this so that power and resources are redistributed and shared equitably, if you're doing this work so that we can live freely in our humanity, you won't stop. Yeah, it'll never stop. I mean, in our lifetimes, I'm sure the, need, the need for this work is not going to stop. So. Yeah, it's it's reorienting towards that. And I think that's, you know, something that I've had to reckon with recently and I'm still reckoning with. Like, 
oh, I think I've been doing this because I wanted to like know because it was my thirst for education and awareness and like to be doing a good job, quote unquote, you know, not just the deeper thing of to be working for justice at all times, which, you know, really is something that motivates me. But I think the thing that stands in the way with this particular issue with white supremacy is that like, it's scary to talk about, you know, like, I think that, you know, because like what you said about how you lo you lost people when you started talking about this stuff. And I know I've lost people and it starts to feel like the stakes are higher and higher as you go for, you know, for me, as I've gone further in this work, the stakes have started to feel higher. So it's like, ooh, I don't want to rock the boat. You know, I don't want to like say too much or I'll say it over here on this platform, but not on this platform. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why I was told by people nothing's higher, nothing's more significant, nothing, nothing is more painful than living in a world that at any given moment, your life could be destroyed because you're black or because of your identity. Like there's no stakes higher than that. And so the reason why the stakes are so high for us to just live, to just walk in our neighborhood is because y'all won't do the work because it's too uncomfortable. It's too inconvenient. So, you know, and the people, when I think about the people that I lost, they were in my life for a moment for a reason, but they, I had to shed those relationships. I wouldn't been able to heal from my own internalized anti-blackness if I had stayed in those relationships as they were. And, you know, for white folks, what I tell is that you don't just cut off the people and just be like, okay, well, I'm done with them. Cause then I have to deal with them. You know, some y'all, y'all got to collect y'all people, but it is painful to lose relationships like across the board that hurts. And there's a lot, there's a lot to process with that. But what I do know though, is that as you do this work, you begin to build relationships with people who also value the humanity of black folks and people of color enough to commit to anti-racism beyond what's easy and what's comfortable. You begin to build relationships and build a community with people who have the core value of humanity as something that they actually live from, you know? And so that, that, that's a beautiful part of that. It's like this community begins to build amongst people who really do value the sanctity of life and of humanity. And you push each other, you pull each other, you, you do the work, you, I tell my students, if your friends are coddling you when I call you out in class, that's the wrong place to go to and process this because you, you need to be somewhere where folks are like, okay, I heard what you said. Now let's process this. Let's do the work. Let's, let, how to, let's follow the formula because we don't want to just get right swept back into white culture, white supremacy and centering ourselves and our interests and our intentions over black people's lives and, and our pain and our suffering. So, you know, there's just a lot of redirecting and shifting and shifting of perspective. And it is not an overnight process and it's not an easy process. I won't pretend that it is, but it's a necessary process. And it's, yeah, a process that requires constant recommitment and coming back to like, and discomfort over and over again. You know, I think that you can think that it's like, I think I thought the discomfort was over, you know, when I went through the first part of it, the first unlearning and the first relearning. And, you know, it's just realizing that, no, the discomfort is going to be there all the time. And that Always. is important. And that shows you that you're at your edge. 
I tell my students, everyone has a threshold. Everyone has a place that they get to when they're like, all right, this is as far as I'm going to go. For some people, it's a like on Instagram. You're going to get a like and that's all they got for you. For some people, it's maybe buying a book and they don't read it, but they bought it. For some people, it's taking a class. Maybe it's being a part of a program or donating money, whatever the thing it is. But everyone has a threshold. And the, the goal isn't to get to the threshold and stop. The goal is to figure out what obstacles are holding you back from pushing through that threshold. You're going to have to constantly keep pushing. And ongoing accountability is a necessary part of that. And I see it in my work because my programs are set up in different ways. And you get to this point where you there's Unity Over Comfort 2.0 that is only for people who have gone through the Shine Box and Unity Over Comfort 1.0. And there's this new level of accountability there. And I ask each of them to tell me like what this experience has been like in comparison to Unity Over Comfort. And they're like, it is night and day. I thought my life was changed from unity of comfort. And here we are like a whole new mind blowing experience. And it's just, again, the threshold, we keep pushing it and we keep pushing it. And I keep challenging them and, and pulling it out and pulling it out because that might be one hour out of the week, but you got the rest of the whole week to consume and to be influenced by white supremacy and everywhere you go, there's no way that it's going to just work out of your system and stay that way just from reading a book. Like that's just impossible. Yeah. That's such a good point. It's like, you have to build a bulwark. I mean, as I'm always saying too, with diet culture, it's like, you have to build this bulwark and this place to come back to that is anti-diet so that you can weather the storm of being out in diet culture all the time. And it's the same with racism. Like we're in white supremacist culture all the time. So you have to build that bulwark and have that community of anti-racist work and people who will push you and people who can hold you accountable in order to go out and, you know, face that white supremacist onslaught without being totally sucked back in. And you probably will get a little sucked back in. Oh, you will. Oh, you, I mean, I, my class, we meet every week and I, there's something they do every time, every single time, every time somebody's apologizing for something. I'm calling something out like it's every time, but I tell them like, that's to be expected. That's what you pay me to do to help you pull out so that you, when you're out there interacting with other folks, you'll be less, you'll cause less harm. Like let's process it here in class, teach you, pull it out, do the things. And then maybe when you go and interact with your friends or your black, whatever folks, you, that's one less thing, hopefully, that you'll do or you'll be more aware of. And that that means that we benefit, Black folks, people of color, when y'all do this work, we benefit. Oh my gosh, I love this so much and could talk to you forever, but I also want to be mindful of your time. So <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking forever. <laughs> I know. Oh my God, it was so good. Went by so fast. Can you tell us where people can learn more about your work and sign up for your classes and, and your podcast and all the great things you offer? Oh, sure. So I'm over on these internet streets at moniquemelton.com. That's where you can find out about every type of class that I offer, everything from the 60, 90 minute classes to the 12 week program and all in between. And um, I have something for also parents. It's a kid's course on how to talk to kids about race. All that stuff is on my website. And then over on the social media and the social media land, I'm in um, Instagram. That's where you can find me at Mo Motivate. Go there. And now I'm going to tell you, when you go over to my Instagram, you can follow me all day long. That's fine. 
but make sure you read the story highlights start here. That gives you a good place of like what to expect. Cause I'm not like your, your ordinary, just like Instagram person. I, I have, I have some boundaries there and, um, I will hold you to them. Yeah. That's so important. I love the boundary setting and yeah, people should definitely go check you out on your website, your Instagram, and we'll put links to all that in the show notes so people can learn more and explore your work. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate everything you shared. Thank you so much for having me. So that is our show. Thanks again so much to Monique Melton for joining us on this episode, and thanks to you for listening. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, just go to christyharrison.com slash 243. That's christyharrison.com slash 243. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. A big thanks to our editor and sound engineer, Mike Lalonde, our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, and our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Melissa Alam. Our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. And I'm your host and producer, Christy Harrison. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched and keep fighting this revolution. Keep fighting for Black lives. Mm-hmm.